Friends, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 150. The 150th Psalm, it's on page 526 of the Bible underneath your seats. Friends, if you need a Bible this morning, that Bible is there for you. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible home. We would love for you to use that Bible as your own, to read from it, and to grow in the Lord from it. Uh, Friends, today we're we're wrapping up an eight-sermon series in the Psalms with the very last song in the biblical psalm book, Psalm 150. You know, one of the goals of this series was to see that the Psalms is not like a file cabinet filled with loose leaf sheet music. No, it's a, it's a beautifully crafted anthology organized over five books to tell one grand epic story. Yes, it's true. The individual Psalms teach us how to pray, how to sing, how to to grieve, how to confess our sins, how to worship. But friends, they do so because they're set in the context of God's covenant promises and the hopes of the coming Messiah King. The Psalms teach us to sing precisely because they teach us how to trust in the King that God has installed on the throne. David's son, yet David's Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. At the beginning of the series, if you remember, we discovered that the Psalms have a twofold intro, Psalms 1 and 2. These Psalms show us our need for the blessed King who will treasure God's word and who will rule God's world just like Adam was created to do in the beginning. If you remember, what's implicit in Psalm 1 is explicit in Psalm 2. God's decree is firm. He will install his King in Zion in keeping with his covenant promise to David in 2 Samuel 7. We heard the beautiful echoes of this covenant motif reverberate in Psalms 41 and 72 and 89 and 106 and 145, the the last Psalms in each of the five books. These Psalms rehearsed God's faithfulness to keep his promise to David and to establish his reign through his Messiah. Friends, the the point in tracing kind of the contours of the Psalms wasn't merely so that we could know our Bibles better, although I hope that's happened. The point was so that we might grow in love for the God who makes us sing, so that we might grow in trust and hope in the God who promised to send the Messiah King and who indeed kept his promises through Christ his Son. Friends, I hope that has happened. I hope you've grown in love and in trust for our God. I know my heart is fuller now than it was nine weeks ago. But now we come to the end. The Psalms fittingly closes with a grand finale of praise. Remember books one to five all end with a remarkably similar doxology. Guys, remember that? Something like, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Well, Now we see that same type of thing in this cluster of Psalms right at the end, Psalms 146 to 150. Psalm 146, 147, 148, 149, 150, each begins and ends in the same way. Scan your eyes over it. Do you see that? Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It's like a rapid fire volley of hallelujah fireworks right here at the end of the Psalms. Say, my, say, John, my, my translation says, praise the Lord. Yeah, that's too bad. That's too bad. I wish the ESV would have translated it hallelujah, because honestly, friends, it's one of the few words understood in every single language. It's been said that there are three words understood by every language on earth. Hallelujah, 
Amen? And Coca-Cola. Probably true. So I, I decided to test this uh, theory out with Vincent Young. Friday, I was working on my sermon. I texted him. I said, Vincent, what's the Mandarin word for Coca-Cola? No, I'm just kidding. I said, what's the Mandarin word for hallelujah? He said, I think it's what the Hebrew is. I think it's hallelujah. I said, see, it's true. It's true. It's fascinating, isn't it? That the word has endured in all languages, almost in its original form. Hallelujah is actually a mashup of two Hebrew words. Hallel, meaning to praise, and Yah, the contracted name of Yahweh, the, the covenant God of the Bible. Quite literally, Halu Yah means praise Yahweh. Praise the Lord. I mean, look at what the Holy Spirit does right here at the end of the Psalms. It's like he turns the praise volume all the way up he toggles the surround sound on. He makes sure the subwoofer is booming. Yes, Psalm 150, like the other Psalms here at the end, begins and ends with hallelujah, praise the Lord. But then every single verse in the song begins with hallel or praise. 13 hallels in six verses, rapid fire, one right after the other. You might say that Psalm 150 is the original hallelujah chorus. It's a climactic crescendo of praise to our God. Friends, let's get it straight from the beginning. The way that we engage with Psalm 150 is not merely by observing it, like we would observe Handel's Messiah in the Hallelujah Chorus at Christmas time. Oh, that's very beautiful. That's very pretty. No, 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 no. That's not what Psalm 50 calls us to do. It doesn't call us to come watch the show happen. No, this psalm summons us to join the band, right? It summons us to add our voice to the choir of all creation to sing hallelujah to the only one worthy of such admiration and praise. Let's read the psalm together. Psalm 150. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with lute and harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And God's people said, praise the Lord. Amen. Friends, you don't have to be a biblical scholar to immediately discern the main idea of Psalm 150. 13 times were summoned to praise the Lord. It seemed a little boring just to say the main idea is praise the Lord, so I came up with something a little bit more full. Here it is, the main idea of the text that I hope will be the main idea of the sermon today. Friends, the song of your lips and the aim of your life should be an exuberant hallelujah to our God. The song of your lips and the aim of your life should be an exuberant hallelujah to our God. I think we can divide this psalm up into three parts. First of all, in verses one and two, we see hallelujah's object. Obviously, our God. Number two, in verses three to five, we see hallelujah's instruments. This, this orchestra that fires up to praise the Lord. Number three, hallelujah's choir to which we're all called to join. Friends, I pray that Psalm 150 might not only this morning highlight how worthy our God is to receive our hallelujahs, 
But friends, really how gracious he is to let us participate in his praise, which is the greatest joy we could ever know. Let's look at the first two verses. Hallelujah's object. Verses one and two set our eyes on our great king, this object of our worship. Look again at verse one. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Friends, I think this call simultaneously points to the Lord's holiness and his sovereignty. God's sanctuary is the holy temple, the place of his rule and, and his worship. Given the next phrase, that we're to praise God in his mighty heavens, I tend to think that by sanctuary, the, the heavenly temple is in view, not the temple in Jerusalem. When we come to worship, we're to understand that we acclaim the one who transcends heaven and earth, the sovereign creator and king. In other words, the invitation is to join in the worship that God is already receiving in his holy place, in his mighty heavens. Look back at Psalm 148, just on the, the page before. I think one, Psalm 148 maybe helps us under, understand what the psalmist here is driving at. Psalm 148, verse 1, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. Praise him sun and moon. Praise him all you shining stars. Praise him you highest heavens. You know, friends, all throughout the scripture, there's this strange but kind of neat connection between the stars and the angels. Both are pictured in the heavens, as it were. For instance, the Lord tells Job in Job 38, 7, that when he created the world, listen, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, the angels, shouted for joy. Why is that? Well, I don't know why that connection is there other than to say both the stars and God's mighty angels are pictured in his heavens. The angels model for us how to praise the Lord, don't they? Remember Isaiah 6? Revelation 4, 7, and 11, you see that the angels worship God eagerly and earnestly and reverently. In Isaiah's vision, when Isaiah saw and heard the seraphim crying out, holy, 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 the, the whole earth is filled with God's glory. What were the creatures doing? Do you remember? They were covering their faces with their wings presumably to shield them from the overwhelming sight of God's unveiled glory. Verse 1 tells us that we're to add our hallelujah to the ongoing chorus of heaven. We lend our weak and feeble voice to the voice of the myriads of angels who surround the throne day and night and to the rightful praise of the galaxies above whose created beauty shouts out the praises of their maker. Said John, how can we humans, we creatures of dust, ever possibly follow the angels in their praise? They belong in God's sanctuary. We do not. Listen as I read from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are the copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. 
nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to, offer, uh, to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Friends, do you see what that's saying? In other words, coming into God's presence is not ours by right. You're, you're correct. But it is King Jesus's by right. And he is there. And we are there too because we are united to him by faith. The veil that separated humanity from God's holy presence has been torn in two. And now we are welcomed into God's very sanctuary by grace through faith in Christ. In God's staggering mercy, we have as much right to be there as Jesus does. Back in... April, I attended the last Together for the Gospel conference, a conference mostly for pastors, but also all Christians were involved, were invited, and 10,000 or so there at the conference in Louisville. And there was a special section, uh, kind of a family and friends section toward the front where all the speakers, families, and friends were, and kind of basically the VIP area. And uh, my buddy, Matt, uh, who preached here a few months ago, he had a wristband that got him into that section up front. And Greg Gilbert was preaching, our good friend. And so I was like, oh, man, do you think I could just kind of like come in there with you, right? Since you're the VIP and, and I could just sit in there with you? He was like, it's worth a try. So I snuck past the ushers and we, I got right in there to the family and friends VIP section. And thankfully, I, I heard Greg preach with a closer view and it was great. And then in between sermons, people are milling about and here comes the usher and he sees my color wristband and he says, sir, I'm going to need you to leave. And I said, but I'm, I'm with him. He's got the right color wristband. And he said, that's not how it works. <laughs> and so I walked the walk of shame, left that area. Thankfully, Matt had to leave early. He gave me his, his color wristband for the last couple sermons. It was, it was not that great, but it was nice of him to do that. Friends, what I'm saying is, is that because we have been invited into God's sanctuary by Christ and we are united to him, we never have to leave. Praise God in his sanctuary. To sing Psalm 150 verse 1 on this side of the cross is to sing as one already enjoying his holy presence by his mercy. My goodness, this ought to cause us to tremble with love and rejoice at such a, a privilege every time we gather together that we who are so small are summoned into the throne room of the one who is so great beyond description. By praising our King together, he takes us deeper into the knowledge and experience of himself through Christ by his spirit. Man, if there's anything that's truly awesome, it is this. It's a reality that ought to fill our hearts with awe and wonder that we can respond to this invitation to praise God in his sanctuary with, with a holy boldness that we know we belong there through grace. Surely this is what Isaac Watts was getting at in his hymn before Jehovah's awful throne. Watts wrote, we'll, we'll crowd thy gates with thankful songs. High as the heavens our voices raise and earth with her 10,000 tongues, shall fill thy courts with sounding praise. But why? Why? What compels our hallelujah? Look at verse 2. What's the reason? The psalmist not only tells us where God is to be worshipped, 
But why? Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Put quite simply, we're to praise God for who He is and what He's done. For His works and His worth. Two weeks ago when we studied Psalm 145 together, we we talked for several minutes about God's unsearchable greatness pictured in His mighty acts and creation and redemption. Friends, God's mighty deeds began when He spoke the worlds into existence and remarkably they did not stop when mankind rebelled against Him. In mercy, God continued to display His mighty acts through history as a demonstration of His commitment to rescue a people for Himself for the praise of His name. And of course, the mightiest of the mighty acts was the incarnation of God's Son who took on flesh to live and die and rise again to bring sinners back to God. Friends, to praise God for His works and His worth is to respond to God's gracious revelation of Himself. Do you realize this? Like seriously, the only way we are beckoned to praise such a glorious God is that He has initiated the worship of it. He didn't have to create anything. God was perfectly happy in his in the fullness of the relationship of the godhead he was not compelled by any outside force to create the world but as jonathan edwards said it's the nature of a fountain to overflow and so this god so full of love overflowed in creation so that his creatures might know the joy of his goodness and his love god's creation is what we call general revelation available to every human being, showcasing His power and glory. But friends, nothing from the outside compelled God to give us His special revelation either, His Word and His Son. No one forced God's hand to breathe out the Scripture that recounts His purpose to save and His mighty acts to redeem. No, God has revealed Himself by grace. And so our praise by nature is a response to grace. God reveals, we respond. Friends, our hallelujah should reflex from both who God is and what He's done for us. Have you ever been to the doctor's office and the doctor done a a reflex test? Like, who invented that? You know, I think I'm going to take a a little rubber hammer and, and hit right below your kneecap and see what happens. That's very strange, but I guess that's important to know whether your leg works correctively. I think, I think when we see God for who He is, it's like that reflex test. God's mighty character. His awesome greatness reflects in praise. God's mighty works throughout salvation history reflects in praise. We see the exodus reflects in praise. We see our salvation in Christ reflects in praise. Friends, this should be the natural outflow of a redeemed heart. If you only praise God for what He's done for you, friends, I think you run the risk of thinking about worship only as it concerns you. You become the reference point for worship, not God. But if you only praise God for who He is, friends, I think you run the risk of your worship becoming abstract. It'll become dry and dusty and theoretical because you haven't grasped what God's character means practically in your life and in the world. We need both. We need both God's works and His worth. God's mighty acts only have meaning and purpose because they flow out of His character. 
And we only understand God's character practically through his mighty acts. For our worship to be full and biblical and rich, we praise God both for who he is and what he's done. Before we move on, let me note one nuance in verse 2. Look at verse 2. The, the psalmist exhorts us to praise God for his mighty deeds, but according to his excellent greatness. In other words, our praise is to kind of rise and expand to match the greatness of God. He's worthy of all our vigor, all our passion, all our, our ambition, our highest songs and love. In other words, friends, I think the psalmist is saying that tepid, half-hearted, yawning, weak-voiced worship needs to die. God's greatness is incomparable. It surpasses the boundaries of our wild imagination. Therefore, we can never overpraise God. Did you know that? You can never overpraise God. You can only underpraise Him. Even our highest praise, in a sense, underpraises Him. You know, if we were to waltz into the throne room of, of an earthly king, we began to shower that king with praises. Oh, great king, live forever. Oh, great king, you're so great. You know, in the back of our mind, we might think, but is he? Like, is he really? Like, if I were in his place, I probably could do a better job, right? And they'd be saying to me how great I am. Oh, friends, it is not so with the worship of our God. Our highest praise cannot reach him on its own. He must stoop to receive it. And praise God, he has done so through the person and work of Christ. Beloved, I'm convinced that if our worship is tepid and our hearts are dull toward God, it's because our thoughts about God are far too low and far too few. You feel your heart is cold? Feel like our corporate gatherings are are boring. I don't think they are, but if that's what, the way you feel, I think it's because your thoughts of God are far too low and far too few. Think about how the psalm begins and ends, the, like the Psalter. Psalm 1, what does it begin with? It begins with delight. The blessed man delights in the law of the Lord on his law. He meditates day and night, and it ends with praise. It begins with delight in God. It ends in the praise of God. There's a straight line connection between what we love and what we praise. We truly know him as he's revealed himself. Our hearts and voices will, will praise his excellent greatness with everything we have. And that's what we see in the next few verses. We give him everything we have. Number two, hallelujah's instruments. Verses three to five, because our God is so great, he's worthy of every godly means of praise at our disposal. Look again at verse three. Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. Friends, what is the psalmist doing here? Why is he firing up the orchestra? Is he saying that God can only be worshipped by these instruments? As if this is kind of the definitive, exhaustive list of instruments to be used in worship for all time? Like, does our worship team need to go hunt for a lute or a lyre and kind of get rid of this modern guitar? I guess let's get rid of the piano since it was invented just a few hundred years ago. No, 
These verses, friends, I think are telling us that God is worthy of the full gamut of instruments and expression to praise his name. In fact, there are seven instruments listed in these verses. It could be that in, like in other case, uh, places in the scripture, this number seven represents fullness or completeness. The psalmist is saying that all instruments, whether wind or string or percussion, all are to be utilized in the praise of the Lord. In fact, friends, instruments achieve their highest purpose when they're used in the praise of God. I think these instruments the psalmist calls for would have reminded Israel of significant events in God's relationship with them. For instance, the tambourine and dance would have reminded Israel of the exodus when Miriam, after the Red Sea crossing, Miriam, Moses' sister, praised the Lord through the tambourine and dance. At Sinai, the trumpet sound blasted as God descended upon the mountain to give his people his law. And don't think of it as a little bugle. In fact, I think it's the shofar. Uh, I asked Jerry, you, you own a shofar, right? I just wanted to show you this. So to bring it up real quick, Jerry, I'm not going to play it. I just wanted you to see. In fact, you can just hold it up. Just hold it up. That's fine. That's a shofar. The ram's horn is what we're talking about here. Leviticus 25, the shofar blasted to signal the start of the year of Jubilee, the freeing of the slaves and the, and the, the, the different things they were doing with the harvest. Probably the idea uh, that, that carried through in 1 Thessalonians when Paul writes that when the Lord returns, the sound of the trumpet will signal the return of the king. Of course, when King David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, 1 Chronicles 15, 16 says this, David also commanded the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their brothers as the singers who would play loudly on musical instruments, on harps and lyres or lutes and cymbals to raise sounds of joy. And of course, you remember when the ark came back into Jerusalem, what did David do? He danced just like Miriam did. Friends, the diversity of instruments in these verses help highlight, I think, the diversity of God's greatness. If God were only known for one attribute, maybe we wouldn't need all the instruments, right? Maybe the brass would be enough. I'm a trombone player, at least I was. Maybe the brass would be enough if God were only known for his majesty. Maybe strings would be enough if God were only known for his kindness and his gentleness. Well, friends, but our God is diversely glorious. Our God is both transcendent and imminent. He is the God of the gentle breeze and the God of the hurricane. He splits the mountains and he closed the lilies. He's the king of the northern lights and the God of the hummingbird. He's the ruler of the supernovas and the Lord of the lightning bug. He's the majestic creator and the tender shepherd. He's the almighty judge and the merciful savior. He's the lion and the lamb. Surely we need all the instruments we can conceive of to worship such a king. Friends, one reason that God created music was to help us express God-glorifying emotions and affections for him. Music is the language of the emotions. Did you realize that? I think you do. You know that. There's a reason God doesn't 
just call us to chant, right? Or to recite stuff. Oh, friends, music touches something deep within us. In worship, music helps us to kind of stir up and express what we love and what we feel. Friends, God wants you to access your emotions and your, increase your inf- affections when you worship Him in song. I think that sometimes Christians are afraid of that. They're, they're, they kind of repress their emotions when they sing. It's almost like they think Christian maturity means holding back and suppressing what they're feeling. But friends, there's a difference. There's a difference between expressing godly emotions and what we'd call emotionalism. Bob Coughlin helpfully writes on this topic, emotionalism, if that's a word, I think it is, emotionalism pursues emotions as ends in themselves. It's wanting to feel something with no regard for how that feeling is produced or for its ultimate purpose. Emotionalism can also view heightened emotions as the infallible sign that God is present. But that's not the case, is it? Friends, here at RGC, we don't use instruments, for instance, during our prayers or our scripture reading or our preaching, kind of in the background, right? We don't, we don't want to use instruments to manipulate people into feeling certain emotions. In fact, even in our singing, we don't pursue an emotion. We pursue God through his truth. Friends, truth is the engine. Emotions, affections are the caboose. They should follow where the truth leads. But using another analogy, it's, it's, let's realize that as we kind of toss the logs of God's truth into the furnace of our hearts, we want the Spirit to set ablaze our hearts with affections and emotions that are in fact God-glorifying. Half-hearted praise is an oxymoron. Our praise should be deep and passionate and wholehearted. Clearly, what begins in our minds with the knowledge of God's works and His worth produces in us affections and desires for Him that friends should explode out in tangible expressions of praise. Head, heart, and hands, as it were. Psalm 150 calls God's people to praise Him with instruments and even with the dance. I mean, what in the world? What are we supposed to do with that, right? As Brian said last week, how Baptist are we, right? Some say, since the New Testament never commands us to dance, physical expressions like dance are totally off limits in Christian worship. Well, friends, if we're consistent, we would also have to admit that the New Testament never commands us to use instruments in worship. What's the New Testament non-negotiable in music? Singing, congregational singing is the New Testament non-negotiable. That's what we do when we come together. We understand the New Testament to regulate what we do here in our gatherings. We call this the regulative principle of worship. The New Testament enjoins us to read the Bible publicly together, to preach the Bible, to pray biblical prayers, to sing biblically shaped songs, to see visibly biblical truth as it were in in baptism and the Lord's Supper and the ordinances. The New Testament is also clear, isn't it? That when we come together, we're not to do our own thing or to draw attention to ourselves. Everything is to be done to edify the body as we worship together. 
So of course that eliminates any expression of worship that's seductive or self-promoting. But friends, God has commanded us to sing the Psalms. Ephesians and Colossians both say that, sing Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which promote things like instruments and dance. And we're not given a clear indication through other scriptures that these things have absolutely ceased. So what do we do? Well, friends, I think we're wise to apply passages like Psalm 150 within a New Testament context and framework. Clearly, music utilizes our bodies. We use our mouths and our voices to sing. We use our hands to play. Music by nature is physical. So friends, it's okay to move with the music a little bit or a lot of bit, depending on the situation. It's perfectly legitimate to clap your hands with the music or to raise your hands in praise. Friends, physical expression is going to look different from culture to culture. It's going to look different in, in, in South America than it does here or in Asia than it does here. It's going to look different from church to church. It's going to look different from person to person, right? Some of you are expressive people by nature. And so physical expression is natural to you. Others of you aren't so expressive, so it feels like a totally foreign thing to lift your hands. There's no upper level of Christianity to unlock. There's no cheat code to unlock through the lifting of hands or physical expression. But friends, you should feel full freedom. You should feel freedom to physically express praise so long as it edifies the church and is not done to draw attention to yourself. You know, we, we use a, a paper worship guide. I don't have one here. We use a paper worship guide, and I understand there's some, there's some ways that that's, in some ways, limiting toward physical expression. I get it. And we're not going to talk about why we use a, a, a paper worship guide now. Part of it is based on some principle. Part of it's just practical stuff. But friends, the fact that we have a paper worship guide should not mean that we're put in a worship straitjacket. We just kind of do this, or, or even worse, what I look around and I see, and if this is you, please don't think I'm targeting you because I have no one in mind. When I see the worship guide just kind of down by the, you know, down by the chair and just kind of doing this. No, friends, hold it with one hand if you need to. Do what you need to do. You see me, I memorize the songs if I can, so I just set my worship guide down and feel the freedom to worship God. Hold it up so your voice projects, Right? Feel free to move a little bit in full-hearted worship and praise to our God. Friends, God has given us a variety of instruments and ways to express our praise. Let's employ them so long as they build up the church and glorify Him. Number three, hallelujah's choir. Hallelujah's choir. Verse six reminds us that the most important instrument in biblical worship is what? Oh, no. What is the most important instrument in biblical worship according to verse 6? Our voice. That's right. Verse 6 says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let everything that has breath. Hallelujah. Raise your, your hand if you have breath in your lungs this morning. Friends, God is calling you to join the choir. As one author put it, to live is to experience God's goodness, 
To experience God's goodness is to owe Him thanks and praise. Thus, all that live are to praise Him. But for us Christians, hallelujah is not just a lyric. It summarizes the ultimate goal of creation and redemption and therefore the ultimate aim of our lives. In response to the greatness and goodness of our God, we live as a glad-hearted hallelujah to our King. My friends, we must not live for our own praise and our own ends throughout the week and then try to flip a switch on Sunday. You know, friends, our worship together on the Lord's Day should be like the, the overflowing, glad culmination of our daily lives of hallelujah to our King. Friends, you ought to praise God with your families. You ought to praise God at your work desk. You ought to praise God on the pickleball court and on the hiking trail and in the swimming pool. Did God give you your bodies? Did he give you muscles that work some of the time, right? You ought to praise God in all things, in the most mundane and in the most spiritual. Every moment is given to us by him, so every moment is holy and to be used for his praise. But when we come together as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we who have been redeemed from eternal death and freed from lives dominated by the power of sin, oh friends, we ought to raise the roof in this place every Sunday. Kids, God wants you to sing loudly to him. Teenagers, grab a worship guide and sing, you are not too cool for school to praise the Lord. Don't let the era of the selfie make you so self-absorbed. Get outside yourself and sing joyfully and loudly to the Lord with a heart full of praise to Him. At the end of the day, friends, the way that we respond to this universal invitation is not to first sing. The way that we respond to the, this invitation is to first set the eyes of our heart on hallelujah's object. Spend time getting to know your God and then you will feel your heart begin to move toward him in praise and love. Let me deal with a couple objections before we close. A couple objections to Psalm 150, potentially that is residing in your heart even as you listen to this. One for non-Christians, one for Christians. I'm going to let C.S. Lewis raise the first objection. There was an objection for him before he became a Christian. I'm going to read a long passage from Lewis's Reflections on the Psalms in a, a specific essay called On Praising. Lewis writes, when I first began to draw near to belief in God, and even for some time after it had been given to me, I found a stumbling block in the demand so clamorously made by all religious people that we should praise God. Still more in the suggestion that God himself demanded it. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue, intelligence, or delightfulness. We despise still more the crowd of people around every dictator, every millionaire, every celebrity who, who gratify that demand. Thus, a picture at once ludicrous and horrible, both of God and of his worshipers, threatened to appear in my mind. The Psalms were especially troublesome in this way. Gratitude to God, reverence to Him, obedience to Him, I thought I could understand. Not this perpetual eulogy. 
nor were matters mended by a modern author who talked of God's right to be praised. But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of, inter I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless, sometimes if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Isn't she? No, no, that's not what he said. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist is telling everyone to praise God. The, excuse me, the psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy. This is important because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. The catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we shall know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify in commanding us to glorify Him, God is inviting us to enjoy Him. Hallelujah. Friends, God is not a self-absorbed narcissist preening for your admiration. No, by inviting your praise, He's activating your fullest joy possible. When the Lord commands us to praise Him, it's the most loving thing He could ever tell us to do because He understands that He's inviting us to delight in what is supremely valuable and to find our unmitigated joy. He's not merely commanding our duty. He's granting us the very delights for which we were created. The problem is, friends, that not that God is self-absorbed, it's that we are. We want to be praised. We want to sit on the throne. We want to be captain of our lives and, and master of our fate. Our oh, friends, such self-exaltation not only shrivels our souls, it warrants God's just and right wrath in eternal hell. Yet the beauty of the gospel is that God in love sent His Son on a rescue mission. Jesus Christ, what He did was He stepped in front of the oncoming freight train hurtling at us, and He took the hit. He died on the cross 
so that God's justice might be satisfied for sin and so that his mercy might be known and experienced and praised by sinners. He died and rose again to secure our eternal joy in himself. So friend, if you're not a Christian, lay down your desire to be king of your life and begin to praise your creator through faith in his son. There you will find your highest joy. Another common objection to Psalm 150 is that it just seems unrealistic. Maybe you're here this morning and your heart is objecting to this psalm because of your circumstances. You think to yourself, there's just no way this psalm applies to me in my situation. My terminal health issue, my broken marriage, my family tragedy, my financial mess, my wayward children. Does God really expect me to praise when my life is marked by such sadness? Well, let me answer that in a couple ways. First of all, friends, you know that this is not the only type of psalm in the Psalter, right? The psalms are full of godly examples of lament which demonstrate how God's people simultaneously grapple with suffering, yet still live by faith and trust in God's character. But friends, I think the shape of the Psalms is instructed for us too. You know, we've, we've learned in this series, especially early on, that the vast majority of the Psalms of lament are front-loaded in books one to three of the Psalms. Just a few appear in Psalms four, or, uh, books four and five. The arc, friends, of the Psalms is from lament to joy. The command, hallelujah, appears 25 times across 150 Psalms, and all of them are, are in books four and five at the very end. Nearly half of them explode in praise in Psalms 146 to 150 alone. Friends, I think what the psalmist is doing, what the editor, what the inspired editor of the Psalms was doing was showing us that our lives as believers, like the flow of this Psalm book, it's moving on a trajectory from sorrow toward eternal hallelujahs. The story of the Psalter tells us that we are in fact called to live in an undeniable world of suffering and pain. Yet the shouts of Psalm 150 here at the end tell us that that pain is not the final word. Your hallelujah may seem halting now, friend. It may seem interrupted so often by the cares of this life and the suffering of this world, but the day is coming when our hallelujah will be sustained forever. And surely the fact, surely the fact that God has already removed your greatest burden and your sin means that you can praise him even now in your sorrow. Surely the fact that he's not only forgiven your sin, but promised you that, that every single circumstance of your life is ordained by him to turn out for your eternal joy. Surely that means that you can praise him through the grief. Not that you put on a glib face. Not that you just kind of grit and, and bear it and force yourself. Oh, friends, but that we carry with us a deeply rooted joy that shouts hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The fact is, Psalm, Psalm 150, the entire Psalter, it ends on a cliffhanger. It may not feel like that, but it ends on a cliffhanger. 
this final hallelujah rings out without a definite fulfillment of God's saving promises. Do you realize that? David's throne still sat vacant when the Psalms were completed. Yet the Psalms project confidence in a faithful God who always keeps his word. Our Lord Jesus came and he conquered sin and death and now he reigns as the resurrected king. And he will come again to consummate his kingdom reign so that our hallelujah never dies. Let me read from Revelation 19 as we close. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, we pray that we would be a people of the hallelujah. Lord, that our lips would not hesitate to praise your name in the good times and the bad. That our lives would be a glad reflection of what you've done in our hearts. That we would not live for ourselves and for our own interests, but we would live for the interests of your kingdom, for the good of others in the advance of your, your gospel. Oh Lord, forgive us for being so small-minded so much of the time that our thoughts of you are far too few and far too small. Oh God, thank you for this call to sing hallelujah to you. Help us respond to it joyfully. Oh Lord, I pray that if someone has been here today and their hallelujah is, is directed to themselves or to any other created thing, Lord, that today would be the day that they, they kneel to King Jesus, that they give their lives to the glad hallelujah of your name, the only thing that can fill their souls and satisfy it. Oh, Lord, that they would deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.